0: We, there we go. Now we're talking. I can't imagine how great uh, heaven must seem now, the idea of, uh, of that many years worth of stress that this life brings. It's tough. Uh, each each year seems to be harder and harder and harder, but uh, the heaven seems glorious, absolutely glorious. Well, I was, uh, I was out of town all week, just to let you guys know where I was. I was speaking at a youth camp, a youth mission trip uh, in Red Springs, North Carolina. It's about 20 minutes uh, I'm, I'm really not sure if it's east or west of Lumberton, uh, but somewhere within that Lumberton area. And uh, just to tell you how interesting it is to, to work and speak with students, uh, students are, are a really neat batch of uh, people to work with, uh, At one of my absolute favorites. One of the things I like about students, this may be, don't take this as harsh if it sounds that way, but students are, are young enough to where they haven't been uh, living in sin more than 15, 16 years. Uh, one of the unique things about, uh, the differences between student and adult ministries is that some adults have been, have been living in and justifying sin, uh, longer than the students have been alive. And so we as adults are really good about justifying sin and, uh, and making excuses for it. And the cool thing about students is, is that, uh, uh you may sometimes criticize them for being open minded, but I really appreciate they 're open minded enough to to look at their lives and see if they match this, and if they don 't they realize that there 's a problem somewhere and sometimes we as adults seem to uh, seem to make a lot of excuses instead of really taking an honest look at our lives and so uh, generally, what happens at a youth camp if you 're not very familiar with them is that if you have five six days with the students, usually one of the days God really Seems to come in and, and grab everybody's heart and, and deal with him. And so Wednesday was a really neat day um, uh, where, where I preached a, a message that night. And the students really responded, and then they went off into their small groups with their own churches. And they really seemed to do business with God, ridding their lives of sin and, uh, and coming to places of repentance and rededication and things like that. And then the next night, God had already dealt with them. Uh, I had talked about sin for the first three nights. And then the the next day, uh, they had dealt with all of their sin, and so there was no need to continue talking about sin because they dealt with it. And so what I did is that uh, I noticed that a lot of the students weren't familiar with the Bible. And so one of the things that I did with them was that Thursday night, I went through the Bible and what I I told them I was going to do it in 45 minutes. And some of the older ones said, yeah, right, you can't do that. And uh, so what happened is one of the students who didn't think I could make it through the whole Bible in 45 minutes, he timed me. and, uh, And I ended up preaching to the students on Thursday night for an hour and 23 minutes. I'm I'm serious. I did. But listen to what I did. The first night, I preached to him for 40 minutes, uh, which was about normal. The second night, I only went about 35 minutes. Uh, and so on Thursday night, I knew I was going to go long, and I told him 45 minutes. And so at the 45-minute marker, there was about 75 students. When I got to 45 minutes, I stopped, and I said, students, you guys have been great sports. It's hot in this room. If any of you want to leave, i'm going to give you about 15 seconds a window of opportunity you can leave you can go back to your rooms you can go play pool you can go play ping pong you can do whatever you want but just you got 15 minutes 15 seconds to make a decision and then i want you to go and i said i want you to know that you're not going to hurt my feelings at all and do you know how many left two adults left (laughs) and the rest of the students stayed and at the end, they said thank you because no one has ever walked us through the Bible from start to finish. And I thought, wow. We've been in churches how long and nobody's ever walked you through the whole story of the Bible in, in one sitting and they said, no, nobody's ever done it. But fear not, I'm not doing that today. That's not today. I'll tell you before we get into something like that. But, uh, I, I was really amazed at, at how these students just didn't leave. I, I really thought I was going to lose half of them, but they stuck around. Well, what we want to do today is I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. So anyways, I say all that while you're turning into Deuteronomy chapter 7 to say uh, thank you. That was the last of my prior commitments before I came. And hopefully this week I'll be able to uh, to come visit a lot of you guys and, and see how life is uh, and see how your life is going and uh, get to know you a little bit more. So I'll be around a lot more this week. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let me pray for us again. Father, I pray that you would speak through me, your servant. I pray that that we would look at your word and we would observe great things. And Lord, I pray that we would, uh, that you would bring conviction on us. Lord, I pray that you would bring uh, encouragement where we need encouragement. And God, I pray that you would give us the boldness to fix absolutely anything in our life that needs fixing in order to be more like you. And so God, take this time that we have together and use it. And God, I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the Old Testament, but uh, some really interesting things happen in the Old Testament. I'm going to start you out in the beginning. I'm not going through the whole Bible. I'm just going to give you enough that you need to know for this story. And if I get about halfway through the sermon and my voice gets shaky, hang in there because I've had a lot to say this week and my voice is about to go. So Adam and Eve start out. On the sixth day, God creates Adam and Eve and God looks down and everything that he made is good. Good. Adam and Eve then proceed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they fall. And so now man is separated from God. You go on a few more pages in your Bible, and you get to the story of the Tower of Babel. And man is created originally to worship and obey God. You get to Genesis chapter 11. And now all of the men from around the earth are gathered together in one place, and they start to make a tower. And the reason they build this tower is so that they can make a great name for themselves. Well, the problem is, is that you are never called to make a great name for yourself. You're called to make a great name for God. So God comes onto the scene and he scatters the people. Now you have people that are separated from God and they're separated from each other. So it's not just as easy as sending... Uh, One person speaking one language together and and rally all the troops back to god And so god has a real dilemma on his hands Somehow he has to grab all of these people from all these different nations and bring them to himself So he chooses a guy named abraham and he says abraham through you I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth and he gives abraham three things He gives abraham land Seed and a blessing And he says abraham i'm going to bless those who bless you and i'm going to curse those who curse you and then you get around to Genesis chapter 18. And in Genesis chapter 18, God says that I chose Abraham as an example so that he could teach his children to walk in his ways. And if his children will walk in his ways the way that he has, I will be able to bring about the good promises that I have for him. You move on from Abraham and Abraham has Isaac who isn't, isn't quite up to Abraham. Isaac has Jacob. And Jacob isn't quite up to Isaac. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And when those 12 sons get older, what do those 11 sons want to do to the youngest son? They want to murder him. And so you've gone from Abraham being this example to now Jacob's 11 sons want to murder the youngest son. And so Abraham's sons aren't exactly walking in his ways. And God isn't able to bring about the promises uh, immediately that he was going to bring about and so what god does is he takes those people. He takes abraham's family his great grandsons now And he moves them into slavery in egypt And you guys all know the story they stay in egypt for 400 years And now it's time for moses to lead the people out And when moses leads the people out he leads them to the edge of the promised land And the book of hebrews says that they did not go into the promised land because of their unbelief and so then god has them do a u-turn And they spend 40 years in the desert. Then God raises up another leader called Joshua. And Joshua is going to be the one that takes them into the promised land. Now there's a lot of wild things that God does when he's going to march these people into the promised land. Probably one of the most bizarre things that that the people have to do is that when they go into the promised land. Now the promised land is the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel land-wise is about the size of Vermont. So it's not a very big place at all, but it's right there in the center of the known world. And so God is going to take about 2 million people from Egypt, and he's going to march them into Israel. But what God wants to do is he doesn't want anybody to be in the land when they get in there. He wants them to be able to start out fresh. He's going to give them Deuteronomy chapter 4 says that Moses tells the people, See, I've given you laws for you to keep. And when you keep these laws, you're going to show your wisdom and your holiness to the nations around you. And they're going to see the way that you conduct yourself. And they're going to be amazed at how great your God is. But he knows, God knows, that if there's other people in there, they will corrupt his people. And so God does something really strange. He tells Joshua, or he tells Moses, when you go into the promised land, you need to wipe everybody out. He says, you need to kill everyone. Push them all out. When you settle in the promised land, there needs to be no one there. Now, that sounds pretty simple, right? Real straightforward. This is what he says here in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hivites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. So this sounds pretty easy, right? You're a military leader. Uh, in case you don't know, the outside world, the secular world, believes that Joshua was the greatest military leader of all times. They give him credit for being the the best And brightest military leader that's ever lived. They recognize the fact that he defeated all of these other peoples. And we know that he did it because of God helping him. They think he did it just because of his own military prowess. And so here's the commander of the army, Joshua. And you're to go into that town and you're to completely destroy everybody. Now, if you're a warrior, this is a simple task. If if I were to go into your house and God said completely destroy everything, I'd say, Okay, no problem. I would go in, guns ablazing, and then whoever's in there is gonna be shooting back, and then with God's help, we're gonna win, right? Because I'm with Joshua. Well, once all the fighting men are gone, now forgive me for a minute, this is gonna be a little bit a little bit rough, but this is what Joshua has to do. After all the fighting men are killed, Joshua now has to destroy everyone. And this sounds really, really harsh, and it is. But God is only taking one little piece of land out of the whole world. And so think of how rough this would be for Joshua to do. Now you have women and children around. And God says, I want, I want a fresh start. Now this is, this is a very localized event that God's telling them to do. And so Joshua does something that maybe he shouldn't have done. Uh, You can be the judge of that. If you go over to Joshua chapter 9, listen to this. I want you not just to see that it was a simple thing that he was asked to do, but God asked Joshua to do an incredibly difficult thing that sometimes we just blow off. Now this happens in Joshua chapter 9. Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill country in the western foothills along the entire coast of the Great Sea, as far as Lebanon... They came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. We're in chapter 9, verse 3 now. However, so what's happened is that Joshua is kicking butt and taking names, right? He's gone from the the wilderness. He's moved into the promised land, and he's wiping the floor with every nation around because God's helping him. And some kings west of there hear about how great Joshua is, and hear, and they get petrified. And so they say, Okay, we're not going to be able to take this guy out in battle. Let's go over to him and trick him. Verse 3. How, however, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him, Men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. Now, is that good or bad? What, what did God say? He said, don't go in and do a bunch of talking. You need a clean house. Don't make a treaty and don't spare anyone. So here comes these people. And they say, make a treaty with us. Verse seven. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, but perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, who are you and where do you come from? They answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan. Verse 11, and our elders and all those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey, go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants, make a treaty with us. Then he says this, verse 12, This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now we see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled were new, but see how cracked they are? And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. And so here comes these men from a town called Gibeon. And that's going to be important later. They come from this town called Gibeon, which is only several miles away. And they resort to a ruse and they come on the scene and they say, Joshua, buddy, pal. We came here because your God is so great and so amazing. And we want to make a treaty with you. What do the Proverbs say about flattery? When someone comes on the scene and they flatter you, chances are we're not as great as people make us out to be sometimes. Chances are when someone comes on the scene flattering you, they want something. Or chances are they want to do something nice for you so they can justify something they're doing over here. Flattery does nothing but ever get people in trouble. So here these people come. They come on the scene with flattery towards Joshua. And then they also, they flatter him with their lips over here. And then over, with their lips over here, they say, hey, this, this bread was warm when we left our house. These wineskins, they were brand new. And the text clearly says when they left their house, they took moldy bread with them and they took old wineskins. Then 14, the men of Israel sampled their provisions, and here's the tragedy, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by an oath. And so here you have the men of Israel, they come together, They sample what the people have said, and they make a treaty with them. And the tragedy of the whole text is that they did not inquire of the Lord. The Lord told them to do something very, very, very specific. I want you to go into the promised land, and I want you to clean it out. I don't want you to make a treaty with anyone, and I don't want you to spare anyone. But the people, they look around and they say, Hey, this seems like a good decision. This seems to make good sense. And so they gather all of their their human wisdom, and they don't inquire of the Lord, and they make a decision. Listen to the rest of it. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, this is verse 16. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out, and on the third day came to their cities, Gibeon. Those other cities. 18. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn on an oath to them to the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but all the leaders answered, we have given them an oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we'll do to them. And so they come up with more conventional wisdom. See, once you compromise one time, once you compromise and don't do what the Lord tells you to do, it's a downhill roll from there. It says, We'll let them live so that the wrath of God will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. 21. They continued, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community. So the leader's promise to them was kept. And so the leaders get together again and they've made one bad decision. And that was to let the people live, to make a treaty with them. And then they get together again, and they make a string of more bad decisions. Instead of running them out of the country like they should have done, they say, we'll let them be our slaves, because that makes sense. We'll let them cut our firewood, and we'll let them carry our water. Seems like a reasonable idea. Sounds like a good idea. Conventional wisdom always seems like a good idea at first. But when God has a plan and an agenda, when you move from that plan, it's always bad news you got to stick to the plan. So, verse 22. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, Why did you deceive us by saying we live a long way from you while you actually live near us? You are now under a curse. You will never cease to serve as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. Now go over to First Kings chapter 3. And we're getting somewhere with all this, so I hope you're hanging on. You see, we have this thing in America where we like to feel really good about ourselves. We like to... We're an incredibly selfish culture, whether you've realized this or not. Look at the hottest selling Christmas items. You can buy an iPod, an iPod. You can buy an iPad. You can buy all of these other items that begin with I. You, you buy an iHome to put your iPod in so you can listen to your music. And then... Uh, Just this this incredibly selfish culture that we live in where everything, we're we're all out for for me, 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 me. And all of our decisions, many of them, revolve around what's best for me. And so here you have a God that we serve that demands total obedience if we're going to follow him. But so often we obey just enough to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. God says, do this. And so we say, okay, I'll do, I'll do something like that. I'll make it happen. And we treat God like we treat our mom or dad. Dad says, wash the car. And so we say, okay, uh, can, can I just wash the outside? And you know, your dad lets you get away with it. But when God says, wash the car, he wants it to be detailed. He wants you to wash the car. He wants you to vacuum it out and he wants you to wipe down the windows. But so often we as people, we as Christians, look for the easy way out of everything. We want to do the, um, well they often say that uh, that uh, that we as churchgoers will will give time and sacrifice until it costs us too much. There's a balance somewhere for us as Christians where our devotion to Christ stops when it begins to cost us more than we're comfortable with. Now just think about if that's true in your life. Where does your devotion to Christ end? How much is too much before you say, "Mm, you think I think I've gone too far. Well, here we go. Joshua's been told, clean out the land. I want you to wipe it clean. I want you to destroy everyone in it. And Joshua almost does it. Then you fast forward about 400 years to 1 Kings chapter 3. And here you have Solomon. And listen to this. 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 1 says this, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Er, bad news. God's people don't need to make alliances with outsiders. God is the only one that we need an alliance with. So Solomon makes an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and then married his daughter. Er, bad news, Solomon. You're not supposed to marry outside of Israel. Okay? So now Solomon's already off on a, on a bad track. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace... In the temple of the Lord in the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places. So Solomon is in the middle of building a temple. And he's also in the middle of building his palace. Just so you know a couple things about Solomon. Solomon takes seven years to build the temple of the Lord. Sounds good, right? Wow, he put a lot of love and care and devotion. Well, then Solomon takes 14 years to build his palace. And you think, hmm, Problem. Remember that whole thing about sacrifice and dedication? The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. This is bad news also. If you're an Israelite, where are you supposed to do your sacrifices? The tabernacle. The tabernacle where you as a Jew are supposed to come and bring all of your sacrifices. But the Jews were sacrificing at the high places. Now, were they sacrificing idols or were they... Worshiping idols at the high places or were they worshiping god where the idols were being worshipped Either one doesn't matter. You're not supposed to do it You see if you do something with a good heart the wrong way, you're still wrong You can be genuinely wrong Right, you can have the best of intentions and be 100 in the wrong That's something that we don't think of anymore. We think oh well you did your best. Well This hurts Sometimes your best isn't good enough. Sometimes you just did it wrong because you didn't do it the way God told you to. And so here's the Israelites. They're doing a couple things wrong. They're sacrificing at the high places, which is wrong, because a temple had not been built for the name of the Lord. Verse 3. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David. Now this is a good thing. David is a man after God's own heart. David is the same man who killed Goliath David is also the same man who would have told Solomon a lot of what he probably wrote down in the Proverbs. And so Solomon is walking with the Lord the same way that his father David did. And this is incredibly good. Then the text says this. Verse 3. Solomon showed love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. Now, Solomon walks according to the the statutes that his father David does, and this is good. But Solomon offers sacrifices on the high places instead of at the tabernacle, and this is bad. Now listen to how much more bad it gets. Verse 4, The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. So Solomon wants to worship the Lord. And he wants to go to the most important high place. He wants to go to the megachurch to worship. Even if the megachurch houses heresy, that's where he's going to go. And what city does he pick to go to? Where is the most important high place? Gibeon. 400 years ago, Joshua didn't listen to the Lord. And he said, I'll let these people live. in this little teeny city in Israel, this little teeny place, the Gibeonites. They have infested the rest of Israel, and now it is the hub of pagan worship in the town. Listen real close, people. Sin that you let live in your life will fester and fester and fester until it absolutely takes over your life. You think what you do on your cell phone and your computer that your kids and your family don't know, that sin wants to eat you alive. Moms, when you're with your children, and maybe your attitude's not the best, and maybe you're looking out for you instead of them, that sin will eat you alive. What you do in moderation, your kids will do in excess. Maybe you want to go to the lake, you want to go to the river, and you want to social drink a little bit. Give it 10, 20 years till your kids are old enough to know what's going on. And they will blow it out of the water. And there will be nothing you can do about it because you let a little bit of sin fester and fester and fester. And generations down the road, it's going to be out of control and there's going to be no way to stop it. That nation of Gibeon... Is what caused the entire, or excuse me, that little city of Gibeon, that little bit of sin that Joshua let live 400 years ago, caused the whole nation of Israel to stumble and fall. And in 722, the Assyrians come out and they wipe out the nation of Israel because God had had enough of their sin. Ladies and gentlemen, sin in the church is not something that we can tolerate. It's not something that you can turn a blind eye to. Whatever your sin is, Whatever your secret sin is or whatever the sin in your life is that nobody in your life has got the intestinal fortitude to confront you with wants to devour you. I'll tell you what I think the church's biggest problem is across America. Pornography. It's a silent evil that is crippling Christians and Christian men around the world. Christian men get caught up in it, and then they can't lead their families because they're so overwhelmed by sin. And when they can't lead their families, they can't lead ministries in the church. And then churches start to argue because ladies step in and they fill the void where absent men are. And we say, oh, ladies aren't supposed to lead in the church, but there's a vacuum of men that are eaten alive by sin, and they're not capable of leading. And it hurts, guys, and the kingdom of God is falling because of it. There's a boatload of other sin going on in the church also, and it's crippling. You cannot be the man and woman of God that he wants you to be if you foster sin in your life. Men and women, we'll talk to the men first. If you don't have another man in your life, I wish we were talking to just men because I would say this really strong. If you don't have another man in your life man enough to say, hey, how's your marriage going? Hey, how's your thought life going? Hey, how's your sin life going? If you don't have a man in your life that will do that to you, you will not be the man that you need to be. Iron sharpens iron. And you need somebody in your life to pick your life apart in a good way and help you grow closer to Christ. Women... You need another woman in your life that will push you to be a better mom, that will push you to be a better wife, that will push you to raise your kids with the fruit of the Spirit instead of in a selfish ambition like most moms do. You have the hardest job out of everybody, I think, moms, because kids are nonstop. It's hard to treat your kids every single day with the fruit of the Spirit. It's easy to snap at them. It's easy to say things to them that maybe aren't encouraging and positive, but are demeaning and tear down. Guys, we as Christians need to not partially obey. We need to be Christians who obey 100% all the way. And we never need to be a group of people that do what God wants them to do most of the time. But then sometimes things come up and they don't consult the Lord. It's an absolute tragedy when godly men and women fall because of sin. Guys, I know godly men all around me that I am friends with that are dropping like flies. They're falling to things like money embezzlement, they're falling to things like affairs and adultery, they're falling to things like their office computer. And it's ripping their lives and their families apart. You see that little sin that you have? Satan isn't happy when you just have a little sin in your life. He wants it to fester and fester and fester until it is absolutely wild and out of control. And then everyone around you sees you make a fool of yourself. And then they say, that guy claimed to be a Christian. And then you drag God's name through the gutter. And men and women in the church are dropping like flies. And I pray that we never become that. But if we as a church will humble ourselves and we will look at our life and give an honest assessment of it and allow God to take control of whatever he wants, sin will never get big and out of control. But that's what Satan wants is for it to get out of control. The Bible says that he roams around the earth like a lion seeking someone he can devour. Your secret sin, he wants to blow out of the water, and he wants everybody to know about it. And you do it long enough, and everybody will know about it. So, as we come to this time of invitation, I want you to to give some thought and pray about your life. Pray about what sorts of sins um, that maybe are going on that are going to be devastating to your children 10, 20 years down the road. Maybe, maybe you're a grandmother or a grandfather. And maybe you had some generational sins that your parents did, you did. And maybe you look back now and you realize they've had some bad consequences. You want to know how to gain instant respect with somebody? Go to your son or daughter and say, I'm sorry. I was walking in ignorance and I didn't know. When I was growing up, that's what everybody did. And nobody told us that it was a sin. But I can see now that our family... Is, is in bad shape because of some of the things that I did as your dad or your mom. You're never too old to humble yourself and to maybe go to your children and tell them that you made a mistake. Children, maybe you need to go to your parents and tell them that you've been making some mistakes. But you want to gain instant credibility with your family? Go to your sons or daughters. Tell them you could have done this or that better. They'll listen. We live in a generation full of hypocrites. And when there's a genuine person in our midst we flock to that person. And so be genuine people who are willing to examine their lives, who are willing to cut sin out of it at any cost so that 400 years from now, 40 years from now, 20 years from now, your family is walking with Christ and that sin doesn't eat them alive. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that we would be people who call on your name at every decision Lord, I pray that we would be people who rid our lives of sin, and Lord, I pray that we would be people who never, uh, who never allow sin to grow and fester in our lives in a way that would bring down an entire nation in 400 years. God, help us to live transparent lives. Help us to be a people that are authentic and genuine and non-hypocritical. Lord, help us to be examples to our children. Help us to be examples to our grandchildren. And Lord, I pray that you would use us in an incredibly mighty way. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here who is caught up in a life of sin, I pray that you would grant them repentance. And Lord, I pray that when they call on your name, that you would forgive them. And that you would, though their skins are as scarlet, you'd wash them white as snow. And God, lastly, I pray that if there's anyone here uh, in this building who has never come to you and repented of their sins and put their faith in, in your son, Jesus Christ, that today would be the day that they call on your name for forgiveness. They put their faith in you and in the resurrection. And Lord, I pray that you would give them eternal life. And so God, as we sing this song of invitation, Lord, I pray that you would move in our midst. I pray that you would help us to, um, to be clean people when we leave and people who are ready to be used by you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our hymn of invitation is number 259. Again, um, I pray that you guys have a great week. And uh, like I say, I'm, I'm back to normal this week. I, I say back to normal. I think that uh, this might be the first normal week since we've been here. And so if you're out and around town this week and you want to drop by the office, I'll be in uh, each day until noon. And then I'm going to get out in town and uh, try to make it by a lot of people's houses and uh, just see everybody. So if you're around, you've got nothing to do, you go to the grocery store, stop by and say hi. And if not, uh, I'll hunt you down and I'll come say hi to you. Sound good? Amen. Hope you guys have a great week. And uh, let me close this in prayer and then you're dismissed. Father, thank you for this time that we've had together. Lord, I pray that you would continue to uh, convict us of sin and help us to grow in righteousness. Lord, I pray that we would, uh, that we would indeed be Christ-like people who use uh, not just those around us, but your son. Uh, as our example that we strive for. Help us to grow, and Lord, help us to uh, have an immense hatred for sin and just an incredible love for you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.